0: blaze on demand
1: this is ben weingarten of the blaze books and today i'm joined by dr andrew bostom by night dr bostom is one of the most erudite and prolific scholars on islam in america and by day he's a doctor at brown university which is it's unbelievable to me how you're able to balance those two out but in any event and how you're able to stay on the faculty at brown in some <laughs> way. Dr. Bostom's most recent book is Iran's Final Solution for Israel, The Legacy of Jihad and Shiite Islamic Jew Hatred in Iran. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ben. So, Dr. Bostom, the first thing I'd like to do is get your reaction to uh, the simply, I think, for our readers, for me – for most of the world, I think, astounding statements from President Obama recently during the national prayer breakfast. And, and I'll play a couple clips from that uh, just to refresh your memory so that it sharpen your mind how astounding the words were that emanated from our president's mouth.
2: We see faith driving us to do right. But we also see faith being twisted and distorted used as a wedge, or worse, sometimes used as a weapon. From a school in Pakistan to the streets of Paris, we have seen violence and terror perpetrated by those who profess to stand up for faith, their faith. Profess to stand up for Islam, but in fact, are betraying it.
1: So the president continues here.
2: So how do we, as people of faith, reconcile these realities? The profound good, the strength, the tenacity, the compassion and love that can flow from all of our faiths, operating alongside those who seek to hijack religious for their own murderous ends. Humanity has been grappling with these questions throughout human history. And lest we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. In our home country, slavery and Jim Crow all too often was justified in the name of Christ.
1: Dr. Bostom, you've studied Islam probably more closely than almost anyone in America. What's your response to this message?
0: Well, actually, um, let me start with with the Civil War. Um, I mean, this is a president who we can excuse him for his ignorance of uh, Islamic theology and uh, Islamic history, you know, despite his nominal uh, background in Islam uh, as a child. Um, But... uh, excuse me, but the abolitionists were Christians, and the United States literally went to war with itself, unlike any other society uh, before, uh, to extirpate the the long-standing, thousand-year long-standing um, evil of of slavery in virtually every human civilization. Um, It's just appalling that he doesn't even grasp that uh, fundamental decency about this country. at any rate, um, if you look at what he's referring to in terms of the Crusades, certainly, um, Ben, if I could just share with you something that, that um, I wrote 10 years ago now when um, uh, I think it was the, um, what was it, the Ridley Scott uh, version of the Crusades was out, and it was, of course, very, um, very apologetic towards Islam and very critical of Christianity. Uh, it, it, I, this was uh, from a two-part, very long essay called, called Jihad Begot the Crusades, and this is the key part, actually. The jihad is intrinsic to the, to the sacred Muslim texts, including the divine Quranic revelation itself, whereas the Crusades were circumscribed historical events subjected to ongoing and meaningful criticism by Christians themselves. Unlike the espousal of jihad in the Quran, The constituent texts of Christianity, the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, do not contain a form fruits. That's actually a medical term. It's incomplete. uh, Institutionalization of the Crusades. The Bible sanctions the Israelites' conquest of Canaan, a a limited domain. It does not sanction a permanent war to submit all the nations of humanity to a uniform code of religious law. Similarly, the tactics of warfare are described in the Bible, unlike the Quran, in very circumscribed and specific contexts. Moreover, while the Bible clearly condemns certain inhumane practices of paganism, it never evoked an eternal war against all the the world's pagans' peoples, for example, like Quran 9.5 does, so the ninth chapter, the 5th verse of the Quran. And then I just simply said the Crusades as an historical phenomenon were a reaction to events resulting from over 450 years of previous jihad campaigns. So I just did what I could back then to put some of this, um, some of this blather in, in, in context. Um, and, and then of course he goes on and talks about uh, the Inquisition. Well, Islam too has had its inquisitions. It's had its inquisitions against other Muslims uh, dating, dating back to the ninth century. Uh, in the in the uh, Abbasid Caliphate. And it also had a horrific uh, inquisition that the Berber Almohad Muslims, uh, Maimonides, lived through this uh, in, in the 12th century, imposed upon the Jews uh, in, in particular, uh, who were massacred, massacred, pillaged, and enslaved by the tens of thousands, and then forcibly converted to Islam. And some practiced crypto-Judaism, and they were subjected to the same practices, curiously, that were adopted by the Inquisitioners uh, in the same region, so you could argue this might have even been an historical uh, uh, prototype. Um, uh, just just within a couple of centuries later, uh, so you know it, it's it, and and the big difference, Ben, I think, is that we in the West, as as religious and and non-religious people, uh, criticize. All of these ideologies, whether they're, whether they're religions like Christianity and Judaism, or whether they're very, very horrible secular totalitarian ideologies like, like Nazism and communism. All, all of these, all of, all of the baggage that we have accumulated, and we have accumulated a lot of baggage, unlike in Islamdom, is open to criticism. And that, that
1: is a profound uh, difference, Ben. You know, many Americans. I think, first of all, it's self-evident when the name of a group is the Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL or whatever we're going to call it. And I grant that there are big distinctions in those names, but it's self-evident to Americans that there is there are jihadist attacks going on throughout the world. America's been hit, Europe's hit, majority Muslim nations have been hit, but Americans will say. But Islam is still a religion of peace, and it's just a percentage of the population who distort words from the Quran and the Hadith or take them literally. What's your response to Americans who make that argument? Um,
0: I think they're profoundly, and at this point in our in our history, uh, given the given the um, given the abyss that we're approaching, uh, dangerously uninformed. Um, the the the. Uh, theologically, uh, Islam has in- institutionalized uh, the jihad, which is which is really warfare, and it doesn't always have to be military warfare, but it is warfare by all means uh, to impose uh, I- Islam and and its and its quintessence, its law, the the, sh- the Sharia, upon all of humanity. That has been the goal uh, since the since the since Muhammad himself uh, and and the conquest certainly that came. Uh, during the rightly guided caliph period, period that, that succeeded him um, through the present era. That, that, has, that has not been changed. Uh, again, a difference between Islam and other religions is that there's been no fundamental criticism and reevaluation of the jihad as a permanent uh, institution. Um, moreover, when we look at the outcome that's, that's ultimately desired by uh, the waging of jihad, uh, which is the application of the sharia. Um, we have very hard metrics on this, Ben, very objective, hard measures of affinity for the Sharia across the, the warp and woof of, of Islamdom. And, um, and we can see, for example, uh, Pew has done polling uh, across Muslim societies in a very, very elegant way for many years now. And they did a poll of polls in 2013 about this specific question of the Sharia, and, and should it be the law of the land. Well, in looking first at the major uh, Muslim sect, the Sunnis, uh, if you look at the five largest Sunni Muslim uh, populations, so that would be um, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Egypt, and then the Muslim majority population of Nigeria, which is a large country but now has a Muslim majority, those are the five single largest populations. If you take a weighted average in the response to this question, you know, basically, do you want the law of the land to be the Sharia? The weighted average from those five largest populations is 77% affirmative. That's, that's, a, that's a terrifying number when one considers what, what the Sharia actually amounts to. It's a totalitarian system. It includes the, the war doctrine of jihad. Uh, it includes things that you the know, public is starting to become familiar with in terms of what are called the had or mandatory pu- crimes and punishments, so you know stoning adulterers, uh, amputating thieves, uh, putting apostates to death, uh, lashing alcohol consumers, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, institutionalized discrimination and, and lesser rights for non-Muslim minorities and even for Muslim women. Those are all part and parcel uh, of the Sharia. And so when, when, when Muslims affirm that that's what they, how they want their societies to be governed, that's what they're referring to. If we turn to Iran, um, Pew did separate polling in Iran that they did not release until a couple of months later after their poll polls, but also in 2013. And surprisingly, and this actually surprised me, I, I mean, I thought if we go back to Iran and look at the pre-revolution period, so the Khomeini revolution is 78-79, and the period, say, from 1925 to 1979 was a period, it was autocratic, but it was a period of at least flirtation with secularization, westernization, and, and clear-cut abrogation of the Sharia. And so you would think that if that was reimposed, now Iran became a Shiite theocracy in 1501 and functioned as one through uh, 1925. There was a period of turmoil in the 18th century and uh, invasion from, from from Afghanistan and uh, Sunni Shiite conflict and then the evolution in a, in a period under Nadir Shah of, of a, of a um, tried to be sort of heterodox between Sunnism and Shiism, but uh, so, so after that period in the, in, the, um, in the 18th century, it reverts to a Shiite theocracy around 1795, and it continues as one uh, in, in the Qajar period until uh, 1925. So effectively, between 1501 and 1925, absent this hiatus of about 70 years in the, um, in the 18th century, Iran was a Shiite theocracy. But again, in the modern period, there's this 54-year period of of secularization. And so you would think when the Sharia is reimposed uh, under Khomeini and, 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 and his ideologues in a very draconian way, that after 35 years uh, there'd be some pushback, there'd be some uh, disgust with it, frankly. And I think there is, but, but unfortunately we have to look gimlet-eyed at what the results told us in this poll that was released in 2013. And so it's a long-winded way of getting back to it. Eighty-three percent answered affirmatively to that same question, do you want the Sharia to be the law of the land? And then pollsters can be very clever. They can ask you another question which you might not relate to a previous question, and and it's a a means of cross-validating. And so what they also asked was, do you think that religious fanaticism is a problem in Iran? And 72% said they did not think it was a problem in Iran, and, and then we have to take a step back and say, well, that means that they don't think, you know, hanging homosexuals from cranes and stoning adulterers and, you know, brutalizing non-Muslim minorities uh, is evidence of religious fanaticism. So the, the data from Iran were particularly depressing for me because I kind of bought into the plausible hypothesis that, you know, this, this was a more progressive society under the Shahs, And maybe they're pining to get back to that, but evidently, you know, again, 70% or, you know, whatever, roughly between the two polls, 17 to 20, 25%, you know, not liking this system is a start, but, you know, they're certainly heavily outnumbered still at this point.
1: Your basic argument is that Sharia and Islam more broadly, in effect, implements a system that is totalitarian, so it's antithetical to Western liberal society majority of Muslim people in the Muslim world believe strongly in that view of their religion as it's promulgated in their most sacred texts. When you encounter someone like Azudi Jasser, how does that factor into your sort of view of the world? Is he an outlier? Is he not following the religion piously in effect? What's your view?
0: Yeah, he's he's clearly an outlier. Um, I, 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 admire the goal that he wants but where where i think he runs afoul of of reality and 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 candor frankly is is that he's not willing he'll never cite the data for example that i just cited to you Ben. it's 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 disturbing it would be disturbing to me if i were a muslim who was very westernized and and secularized and and really did want to practice my islam as as a as a denuded, uh, private faith, which doesn't have any of these totalitarian aspects to it, Uh, practice the pietistic aspects of it, uh, it, it, you know, peacefully and and be a good citizen, etc. If he's confronted with the fact that he really is such an outlier, um, I, I, I think it creates almost a cognitive dissonance, Ben, and, and I sympathize, but I would appreciate if, if, if uh, good Western uh, Muslims like him were a little more honest about the scope of the problem. And even in the United States, we're seeing signs. I mean, these ideas, whether they're Zudi's ideas or whether the ideas of mainstream Islam, uh, obviously cross all borders now. And if we look at polling data from American Muslims, um, it's beginning to get alarming. Uh, there were polling data released, actually they were essentially done just to gauge who Muslims were going to vote for in 2012, and these were, these were polls conducted by Wenzel Associates. And um, in terms of their validity, they did in fact predict what, that Muslims were largely voting for Obama, that turned out to be true. Um, but then they asked some. as far as connecting, uh, collecting demographic data and attitudinal data, they asked some very important questions and uh, one of the questions they asked was, um, should should uh, should uh, Americans basically be allowed uh, to criticize Muhammad and Islam? And fifty eight percent of Muslims in this country said no. Forty six percent felt that there should be some form of of legal punishment for engaging in free speech criticism of of Muhammad and Islam. Um, and twelve percent. I mean, that's thank God that's a small number, but it's still significant when you when you deal with with this question. Twelve percent actually said that uh, blasphemers should suffer the Sharia penalty, which is being put to death. Um, about a third wanted the Sharia eventually to replace the U.S. Constitution. Now, those aren't numbers like you're getting from the five largest Muslim populations in the world, or or from Iran, where you know seventy-seven percent and eighty-three percent respectively. But I found that somewhat alarming already in this country that those attitudes uh, were so widespread
1: transitioning now to Iran, what in your view should every American know about the doctrinal basis in Islam for what Iran is pursuing today?
0: well i think yeah i I, I think there are some fundamental confusions that need to be cleared up first, what I touched upon earlier is that is that um, the the um The unusual period in Iran's history, if we take it from 1501 and the foundation of the Safavid uh, theocracy, was that period which we would look upon more fondly, the period from 1925 to 1979, where there's no question that there was a lot of um, autocratic brutality, but there was a move uh, certainly to improve the plight of of, uh, Iranian uh, Muslim women and, and minority women and minorities in general. Um, and there were efforts at westernization, secularization. Um, they, did, they did come at a cost. Uh, there was a constant struggle against both communist forces and, and what you know, traditionalist, fundamentalist Islamic forces. Um, so, but essentially what Khomeini did is he restored the status quo ante, uh, the, the, the Shiite theocracy aspects of Iran, where I think it's, uh, it's, it's Brown's uh, statement from 1906, and he's talking about the entire period, you know, again, dating from 1501, and he talks about how, paraphrasing, that, that the that the, mujtahid, the highest uh, level scholars of Islam, and the mullah, the more garden variety preachers, uh, regulate everything from the issues of, of, of personal purification to the largest issues of politics. Now that told me, that since that's exactly what's going on right now in the post-79 period, that that really is Iran's legacy. That's its long uh, legacy. So people need to understand that. There's nothing sort of sui generis about, about Khomeini. The other thing that, that, that's traditional, uh, or, or, or restoration of tradition, is the, is the jihad doctrine. Jihad in, in Sunni and Shiite Islam converged and came together uh, really uh, completely by the end of the 13th century, in other words, open-ended warfare against uh, non-Muslims. Uh, some people still think that the uh, Shiites are waiting around for their 12th Imam. Uh, this is nonsense. In fact, during the Safavid and Qajar periods where they at- actually had a Shiite uh, dynasty, many jurists argued that it was more noble to wage jihad in the absence of the return of the 12th Imam. And that's exactly what the Khomeini era ideologues have said uh, right now, including those, and this touches upon another touchy sub- subject, the issue of the Green Revolution, though the Green Movement, um, including ideologues for the Green Movement, like Ayatollah Montazeri. In other words, he's a full, he was a full-throated jihadist, he died in December of 2009, um, no different than Khomeini, and no different than Khomeini in other aspects of the ideology, which are particularly odious. The, the, the Shiites believe in, the, in both the phys, physical and spiritual impurity of the infidel, much, to, a, to a much more severe degree, than, than Sunnis and they and they codified in Iran a whole series of, you know, to non-Muslims very bizarre sa- sounding regulations that literally had to do with Muslims avoiding uh, the the physical being and secretions without getting too gross about about non-Muslims that that has been restored and this is a very dehumanizing ideology and I think we need to bear that in mind when we consider you know a a country with with potentially Uh, annihilationist nuclear capabilities whether it's directed at the so-called little Satan Israel or or at the United States Um, and so I would say that and then of course you know what's obvious to most people whether they understand the doctrine or not and of course most don't is that there's something particularly virulent in the in the anti-semitism in the Jew hatred in Iran and there again Sunni and Shiite doctrine largely converges the Najis, to a certain extent, makes the Jews uh, a, a little more um, hated, vulnerable, however you want to put it, because they are also considered unclean. The end-of-times theology, uh, actually, in traditional Shiite Islam, although that may be changing a little bit now, this poly- cross-pollination between Sunni and Shiites, is actually more benign towards the Jews, traditionally. Uh, Sunni Islam is, is, like in the Hamas Charter, for example, is you have the famous Garkad tree hadith, where... Uh, essentially the Jews have to be annihilated to usher in the Messianic Age. Shiite Islam, in its polemic with the Sunnis, actually replaced, uh, replaces the annihilation of Jews with the annihilation of the Sunnis. But like I said, Ben, there there is some tendency now towards uh, Shiite Islam ad- ad- adopting perhaps more of the of the Sunni attitude that the Jews are really central and the, and the uh, or the annihilation of the Jews is really central to ushering in the messianic age so if I' had to summarize quickly, I would say the three pillars of the ideology that are particularly alarming are the jihadism the the najis impurity and and, and dehumanization really of of the non Muslim in general and the jew hatred specifically
1: and these are the ideas that Basically, comprise the fundamental belief system of the Ayat- of the mullahs in Iran. That that's correct.
0: Yes, and and, and also we have to be honest again. Uh, you know, this
1: is why I was ve- I became uh, again initially.
0: You know, on 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 the surface looked interesting. Uh, I became very 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 uh, down and depressed, frankly, about the about the green movement because um, Ayatollah Montazeri, who I mentioned earlier. Um, who died in 2009, was considered um, by, you know, Iran experts in this country to be the spiritual godfather of, of the Green Movement, and of course, uh, Mir Hossein Mousavi, who, who was imprisoned, uh, uh, was, was the political leader, and they are, they are full-throated Khomeiniists, uh, traditionalists. Uh, and you can gather this up from from their writings, from their speeches, uh, from from memoirs. Um, you know, all all the the same core ideologies that are that I find so so uh, dark and destructive. Are, are, are shared. They may have tactical differences with, you know, there's a, there, there are two factions in Iran that have been labeled, and I think it's actually reasonable labels, you know, more overtly ideological and more pragmatic. Now, they, they, the Greens, you know, obviously, they, they really seem to come from the more pragmatic camp, but it's a very much shared ideology. Now, it, on the streets, that's not to say that the streets didn't contain perhaps the one-fifth of the population as well, um, who, who truly are secular, who truly have a different vision. But the Green Movement, per se, and its ideologues, they, they want a nuclear program. They use the same annihilationist rhetoric uh, towards Israel. They have the same anti-Western, anti-U.S. rhetoric. So I get very, very concerned when people start talking about regime change along the li- lines of the, of the Green Movement. I, I, I think it's a unicorn.
1: As always, it seems in the West, whenever we whenever the popular narrative is that there is a moderate movement against a more extreme quote unquote movement in the Arab world, it oftentimes turns out that the real difference is tactical, not ideological, is basically to summarize what you're saying.
0: yes, and 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 I think, and if people are curious about this, uh, in two thousand and nine to its great credit, and I, and and this is the Middle East Media Research Institute. Look, whatever people think about them, they they have been on a genuine search for moderation in the Muslim world, and they will go out of their way to publish speeches and 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 writings and interviews by by real moderates, uh, secularists, whomever uh, in in the in the Muslim world, and they made the case right as it was happening that look, the Green Revolution is largely a conflict. Certainly, the political conflict is 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 between. Factions that are under the same umbrella, um, and that was right in the midst of it in two thousand nine in the summer. Um, over the last eighteen months, they've done I think about a thirteen part series to sort of bring that story forward, showing that a lot of the a lot of the tensions uh, still exist, um, but that in the end it it really is as you put it a question of tactics. And now I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to be you know, too entirely negative about this, because I take some small comfort in what Pew is telling us. There, there are secularists in Iran. They exist. One of the problems that, of course, Pew can't get beneath is that some of the secularists, unfortunately, may still be holdovers from the from the very, very difficult communist movement in Iran. So we can't sort that all out. But but I have, in fact, uh, with a colleague, a journalist colleague, Alisa uh, Lappin, we interviewed a true Western secularist, who has a small movement in Iran. Uh, It's called the uh, MPG party. Um, But to this point, it's not
1: galvanized a big amount of support, unfortunately, but it exists. It exists. It seems that the U.S. posture, and this has been written about in numerous outlets, you know, quote unquote, conservative ones, and the rest of the media that, in effect, our stance towards Iran has changed to the point where now it's about containment or living with a nuclear Iran rather than actually trying to stop it. How would a nuclear Iran directly affect America and her interests?
2: Well,
0: we've seen pictures now of a 27-meter ICBM, so uh, that's, not, that's well beyond the range needed to reach uh, Europe or Israel. Um, so something... <laughs> Something, something is going awry uh, if we're allowing, and basically what the P5 plus one agreement, uh, if we could talk about that quickly, where the P5 plus one is the, um, the original powers of the, of the post World War II uh, Security Council. So, United States, former Soviet Union, China, France, and Britain, and then the plus one is Germany, and then, of course, the party they're negotiating with is Iran. The original uh, agreement was announced uh, November 24, 2013. It was supposed to be finalized as of, as of June or so of 2014. Uh, it was pushed back to the fall of this year and th- uh, of the, this past year, 2014. And then on November 24th, uh, 2014, it was announced that it's being pushed forward yet again to just about June of, of, uh, of 2015. Um, but essentially what it has done is, it, it is it's very dangerous. It has given legitimacy to Iran's so-called right, to enrich uranium, of course, you know it's claimed that there's certain uh, percentage enrichment that they're going to be constrained within. It's very, very difficult to enforce that under ideal circumstances. And regardless, Ben, the machinery to enrich past about three or four percent is exactly the same that you would need to get up to true weapons grade, whether that's uh, eighty or ninety percent. So if you really want to prevent uranium enrichment, you have to dismantle the uranium enrichment infrastructure. And, of course, that's not part of the agreement. It's enshrined. Um, also, there's no uh, safeguards in the agreement uh, in terms of dealing with uh, the, the um, bomb detonation and, and construction experimental uh, uh, networks that Iran has, particularly in Parchin, uh, as I mentioned, obviously there's, there's no constraint on their ballistic missile program if they're built, building ICBMs, basically. It's, it, it couldn't be more of, of a complete disaster. And I attended a hearing on, on January 28th where Congressman Trent Franks um, showed a booklet that had been translated. Um, I believe it was put together by the Iranian uh, military, and it was proudly discussing their their ongoing research into uh, generating an electromotive pulse you know with a nuclear weapon so you know that that's uh, that's not necessarily directed at Israel either uh, that could be directed at Europe and, and even at the United States particularly now with with uh, uh, um, an ICBM capable of delivering uh, a nuclear payload so it's i think these negotiations i guess one one less obviously very dark and dangerous thing that the negotiations do is that because they involve Iran in this phony but legitimate process, so that you're giving Iran a legitimization, you delegitimize any attempt by military means, whether it's Israel or the United States, to take out their nuclear infrastructure, which unfortunately, Ben, in the end, is the only way to solve this problem, even on a temporary basis. Um, That really uh, it emerges from these disastrous negotiations that we the negotiations themselves need to be abandoned. Uh, Iranian Iranian uranium enrichment has uh, increased dramatically over the period since 2009. There's a beautiful f- slide that um, Fred Flight's put together, a f- former CIA analyst uh, from the Center for Security Policy. It was published um, in the National Review. It was vetted by the um, Ombudsman by the fact checker at the Washington uh, uh, Post, uh, Glenn Kessler, and Kessler even went to the Harvard School of Public Health to discuss uh, Fred Flights's slide. And Ali Heinen at the at the Kennedy, uh, i sorry, it was the Kennedy School, not the public, not the School of Public Health. I'm a mixing professions here. Ali um, uh, Heininen, who is certainly to the left of the Center for Security Policy, said, "You know, Mr. Flight's estimate is wrong, but it's wrong. It's wrong in his conservative estimate." Uh, I think uh, Fred Flight's estimate was somewhere six to eight weapons worth of, of enriched uranium. Um, Ali Heinen said that, uh, from, the, from the Kennedy School, said that, nah, it's more like 10 to 12. Uh, so all this is going on uh, in the face of a long period when sanctions were in effect. Um, the other piece of polling data that's, that's disturbing is that when the sanctions were at their height around the beginning of 2013. Iranians themselves were polled, and two-thirds of them wanted Iran to continue with its nuclear program. So um, all these things add up to a very dangerous uh, situation, uh, Ben.
1: Let's turn lastly to uh, what I like to think of as the greatest foreign policy accomplishment uh, during the Obama years, which happened in spite of President Obama, and that is the rising to power of General Sisi in Egypt. Now, There were many conservatives who wrote these flowing articles about how lauding Sisi for a speech that he recently gave at Al-Azhar University, where he called for, in effect, a reformation in the Muslim world and spoke directly to prominent clerics saying that we need to reform, that we're destroying our culture, destroying our nations, etc. You took a very contrarian view towards what Sisi said, because you've studied some of the things that he's written in the past— what right. your take on cc
0: well f- first of all I, I i'm not sure i'm not sure maybe by CeCe's standard i'll give him some credit he was calling for some form of reformation he he even even in even in that address the one on new year's day and then some additional comments he made and it was a very symbolic visit he took by the way when he went uh, to to um, i think it was the was at the saint marks uh, it was it was a very important uh, coptic church that he went to on, on, on the celebration of Christmas. Now, that church had been visited by um, Muslim leaders before, like Nasser himself and like Adli Mansour, but, but Sisi uh, was, was different, uh, St. Mark's Church, Sisi was different in, in actually going there on Christmas Day. So I, that, that was a very symbolic uh, visit that he made. But he's, he wants to exculpate Islam. And so uh, the kinds of thing, reforms that he's uh, calling for are very unclear to me, um, because uh, Egypt is a very pious, uh, sh- you know, sh- Sharia-compliant country um, in, in ways that, that are not compatible with, with uh, basic uh, human rights that we take and, and freedoms that we take for granted in the West. And that, that, that's one cause of concern, I'll I'll get back to that. But, but my initial concern with CC before he was actually elected was a 2006 U.S. Army War College uh, thesis that, that he had written. And I had to get it uh, through the help of Judicial Watch. Um, he wasn't allowing it out there. I mean, that's the author's prerogative, um, although we pay for uh, his stay at the U.S. <laughs> Army War College. So, of course, in the end, it was pretty easy to get with a, with a Freedom of Information request through Judicial Watch. And I was concerned in reading it. So this was published in 2006. So C.C. was 52, 53 years old. I'm certainly, you know, a a mature man, not a a young, wild ideologue. Um, And he was glorifying the caliphate system which I found alarming, but then I wanted to say, well, you know, it's a romantic view of the caliphate. I mean, many pious Muslims believe that the caliphate system was wonderful, even though it was a Sharia supremacist totalitarian system, very bloody, very conquering. Um, So I was willing to give him a slight pass on that. It's just a romantic view of something that, from a non-Muslim perspective, is not all that romantic. Um, But the thing that really alarmed me, and I think that's consistent with his behavior since he's become president, is that he was virulently anti-secular, an anti-secular consensus. And a secular consensus is the only plausible way to guarantee rights for uh, certainly non-Muslims in Egypt and, and for Muslims who are secular-leaning or even overtly atheistic. And, and to confirm my, my discomfiture with that, as, as, since he's taken power, there's been a broad campaign to quote extirpate atheism in in Egypt, and it's been done uh, with his ministries of youth and his ministries of education, with the support of Al Azhar University, which is you know the the, the the very prestigious teaching religious teaching institution in Egypt. Um, and there's also been uh, no relenting in the campaign to prosecute blasphemers and uh, blasphemers of of Islam, and that of course targets the Coptic minority. The other thing, Ben, is that CC made a promise he has not kept, which was during those Muslim Brotherhood-inspired pogroms about 18 months ago, uh, so I guess that would take us back to the summer of, of, of 2013, um, Coptic churches were pillaged and, and ruined and burned. And he promised to rebuild them. They still lie in ruins. Uh, to his credit, the army did dump off some building supplies at some of them, but really very little has been done to live up to that pledge. He also is staunchly supported by the fundamentalist Noor Party, who are basically the Muslim Brotherhood thus far without the violence. So I'm, I'm, I, I don't really see him, uh, any evidence uh, of him being a transformative figure. On the other hand, if he will bring back sort of the Mubarak era, um, you know, stability, leaning, leaning more to, 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 to the West, um, obviously that's better than the very hostile, very aggressive Muslim Brotherhood-dominated, uh, you know, Morsi, Morsi regime. So I, 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 I certainly prefer him to, uh, to, to, to Morsi, um, but I just don't, I just, at this point, I, I see no evidence that he's going to be the kind of uh, transformative figure that was suggested in these hagiographies that, that you refer to.
1: We've been speaking with Dr. Andrew Bostom, whose most recent book, which I urge every listener to pick up, is Iran's Final Solution for Israel, The Legacy of Jihad, and Shiite Islamic Jew Hatred in Iran. Dr. Bostom, thanks so much for speaking with us today.
0: Thank you very much,
1: Ben. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks, and Twitter at The Blaze Books. You can follow me on Twitter at BHWineGarden.